Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Well, good morning again. Uh, Today we are continuing our series in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, The Apostles' Creed does not have the authority of Scripture by any stretch of the imagination, but it is almost as old as many of the writings of the New Testament and has proven itself to be a faithful summary of the Apostles' teaching. That's why it's called the Apostles' Creed. And it has been a a plumb line for the church in terms of showing us and reminding us what it means to be a Christian, what we must believe in our head and with our heart. And so, again, let me ask you, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we dive into your word today, to appreciate and understand the depths of the truths that we just profess, God. Pray that your Holy Spirit would go to work on us and in us, Lord. That you will soften our heart, that you help us to understand how these truths are wonderful and how they apply to our everyday life. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Although I grew up in the church and I grew up reciting the Apostles' Creed almost every week of my life, I did not become a Christian until months before I went off to college. And when I went to college, God blessed me with two very wonderful and godly friends. We'll call them Joe and Bob. Joe and Bob and I were virtually inseparable. We were the three amigos. We would play sports together. We would go camping together. We would go on long trips together. I remember we would sit up late at night and eat ramen noodles and talk theology together because that's what college should be like. But they were my closest friends and just a blessing from God. They were so close that both of them were groomsmen in our wedding. 
Anyways, after graduating college, all of us kind of went, the three of us kind of went our separate ways to different places. We all ended up in different seminaries at different times. Joe is currently a pastor in St. Louis, and uh, Bob is a professional counselor overseas. Joe and I have continued our relationship. Uh, we talk on a frequent basis, maybe once a month or every other month, just to connect, to to see how each other are doing, to support one another in prayer. He's still one of my most trusted friends. Bob, on the other hand, after we graduated college, kind of dropped off the face of the earth. As much as Joe and I tried to reach out and connect with Bob through email and through phone calls, Bob would not respond to any of our communication. And to be honest, it hurt a little bit because I thought that we were so close to each other. He was such a vital part of my life and my growth as a Christian. Later talking to Joe about this, I came to find out that Bob has a really good connection with people that he rubs shoulders with in everyday lives, whether it be uh, you know, his, his workplace or his church, that he really does well at communicating with those types of folks in those circles. But if you are outside of his everyday life, communication with you is not really a high priority for him. This even pertains to his own family. And I bring this up because sometimes... I think that's how we feel in our relationship with Jesus. Like at one time, when we first came to know Jesus, Jesus was intimate with us. We walked with him. We talked with him. We were close with him. But now Jesus seems distant, as if he is in a foreign land, doing his own thing. You know, Jesus was a guy who lived a long time ago on this earth, who did amazing things. But then he left. And he dis, it seems as if he has distanced himself from us. At times it seems like he does not respond to our prayers. At times it seems as if he is uninterested and unconnected and unaware of us. I'm curious if you have ever felt that way. That Jesus is so distant. Maybe you feel that way today. You know, for over 1,800 years, the, the 1800 years, the Apostles' Creed has declared the core beliefs of Christianity. And it starts with the Trinity. It begins with God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And then it moves on to Jesus, the Son of God. And this takes up the largest portion of the Creed because much of the heresy of the time was in regards to Jesus. But as we walk through the creed thus far, everything that we have professed about Jesus is an event that has happened in the past about 2,000 years ago. And so we profess that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried, that he descended into the dead, and that he rose from the dead. All of these things happened about 2,000 years ago. They are past events. But where is Jesus today? What is Jesus up to right now at this very second as you sit in those chairs? Is Jesus aware of us? Is he concerned about us? Is he interested in us? Today, the Apostles' Creed brings us to the present ministry of Jesus 
as we cover the part of the profession that says Jesus ascended into heaven and is, present tense, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So if you would please open up to Acts chapter 1 in your Bible. If you do not have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you. And we are on page 909 of that red Bible. We're going back to the book of Acts. Went there a few weeks ago as well. And just as a reminder, the book of Acts is a sequel to the gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke wrote both the gospel of Luke and the and Acts, which is the Acts of the Apostle. Um, but what is so interesting that I discovered this week is how Luke separated. Where does he stop the gospel of Luke and big, begin the book of Acts? What is the event that, that separates these two books of the Bible? And what you find out as you read the end of the gospel of Luke and the beginning of the, gospel, uh, uh, the, beginning of the book of Acts, what you find out is the event that separates these two uh, books of the Bible is the ascension of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the Gospel of Luke ends with these verses. It will be on the screen. Luke 24, 49 through 53, Jesus says to his apostles, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. That is the ascension because Christ ascended from the earth. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So that is how the gospel of Luke ends with the ascension of Christ. And then in the, in the beginning of the book of Acts, Luke is, is reminding us of that event and then moving forward from there. So Together, I want to look at Acts chapter 1. Uh, we'll look at verses 1 through 11 and then flip the page to chapter 2 and look at verses 32 through 35 as well. So Acts 1 verse 1. In the first book, which is the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, talking about the ascension, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the time or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. Imagine it. He was lifted up. A cloud took him out of their sight, and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 
Now, if you'd flip probably just one page to Acts chapter 2, we'll look at verses 32 through 35. And again, this is the first sermon to the church through the apostle Peter. Acts 2.32, Peter says, This Jesus God raised up, talking about the resurrection, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies your footstool. You know, if you were one of the apostles and Jesus rose from the dead, you would have been so excited, so elated to have not only your friend, but your Savior alive. And if you can imagine them walking out towards Bethany, as we read in the Gospel of Luke, and all of a sudden Jesus is blessing you and he starts levitating into the sky and then disappears up into the clouds of heaven, not only would that be pretty cool to see, but it would probably be pretty startling, right? I mean, there's a chance if you were an apostle there, you would maybe feel like Jesus was abandoning you. Like Jesus was leaving the brokenness of this world to go to a glorious place and he was leaving you behind to deal with the mess of humanity. That's what the apostles could have felt. And yet we know that's not what the apostles did feel. You see, at the end of the gospel of Luke that we just looked at, after Jesus ascended into heaven, it says, the very last two verses of the gospel of Luke, it says, they worshiped Jesus and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They were continually in the temple blessing God. They, they did not always have this posture towards Jesus' departure. Matter of fact, in John 16, 7, Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. And they did not agree with Jesus. They challenged Jesus on that concept that it was to their advantage if Jesus went away. But something changed that made them rejoice and praise God at Jesus' departure. And so why at the ascension were they so happy that Jesus went away? Why should we be happy that Jesus went away? I mean, think of it. If Jesus did not go away, how cool would it be to have Jesus as a guest speaker at our church? To listen to his podcast, to watch his video sermons, to go to his conferences, to see him heal people, to see him calm the storm. How amazing would that be? It would be fantastic. And so why is it better for you and for me that Jesus is no longer here on earth, but that he went away ascending into heaven? Well, there are many answers to this, to be honest with you, but I want to give you three reasons why we should be happy that Jesus is physically no longer here on earth, but has ascended into heaven. The first reason is the ascension was necessary for the exaltation of Christ, meaning the proper exaltation of Jesus and its benefits for us are not possible unless Jesus ascended into heaven. Look at Acts 2.32 with me. Peter says, this Jesus God raised up, 
talking about the resurrection, and of that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted. We're going to pause there. Exalted, that's codename for the ascension of Christ. They're synonymous with one another. We see this later in the gospel, uh, I'm sorry, in the book of Acts as well. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles say that God exalted Jesus at the right hand of the Father. For Jesus to be exalted is for Jesus to be lifted high, to be raised to a position of prominence. You see, the reason why Jesus was lifted up into the clouds and up into the sky is not because that was the direction towards the heaven he was going towards. It wasn't that Jesus was going up and floating just behind Pluto where he's going to hang out with the Father and look around at Peekaboo to see what's going on in earth. That wasn't necessarily the direction he was going to go to heaven. The reason why Jesus ascended upward is because upward is a way, is a position of honor and of exaltation. We still do this today. If you are in track and field or if you've seen the Olympics, you know, if someone gets third place, they get raised up on a platform. If they're in second place, they get raised up a little higher on a platform. If you get first place, then you get raised up to the highest place on the platform. You are being exalted as you are ascending up those ranks. Or if you win, you know, the, if you hit the winning home run or the, the game-winning touchdown, you are, you are ascended up onto people's shoulders. You are exalted because that is a place of prominence. Jesus ascended because he was being exalted above his creation. He's being exalted above every man and every woman, every king, every queen. He was being exalted to a place of glory. This is further confirmed by the position Jesus is exalted to. Acts 2 verse 32 again. This Jesus God raised up the resurrection, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted, that is, ascended, where's he being exalted to? At the right hand of God. That's where Jesus is right now, at the right hand of God. For David, excuse me, skip down to verse 34, for David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So what does it mean that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty? Well, we know that God the Father Almighty is a spirit, that he does not have a body like man. And so that means he does not have a right hand for Jesus to sit next to, nor does he even have a left hand for Jesus to sit next to. When it says that Jesus was seated at the right hand of God, it is not so much talking about Jesus' placement as it is talking about Jesus' prominence. You see, the right hand is a position of distinction, of authority, of power. Even today, we will say, yeah, he is so-and-so's right-hand man, right? Now, the power and authority and prominence of that right-hand man is directly related to the person he is the right-man hand for, I mean, if I had a right-hand man, that would be very cool. But if I had a right-hand man and I sent them to the police station, and I said, hey, go tell them that you need, to, you need to borrow one of their police cars, okay? And they would go into the police station and say, yeah, I'm pa Pastor Dan Jackson's right-hand man. I need to borrow one of your police cars. What would they do? They would laugh at you, right? 
But if you were Mike Pence, the right-hand man of the President of the United States, and you walked into a police station and said, hey, I need to borrow a car, they would probably give you, like, all of them. Like, hey, let us accompany you. Let us be an escort for you. Why? Because the prominence of the right-hand man has to do with who he is right, the right-hand man of. And so who is Jesus the right-hand man of? Of. We profess he is at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And it says Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Not because Jesus is done working, but because Jesus is king. Whose coronation came through his ascension and sitting at the right hand of the Father. And now he has authority over all powers and principalities. Ephesians 1.20 says, The Father worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 1 Peter 3.22 says, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus ascended and was seated because he was being exalted to his rightful place, now having authority over everyone and everything. And so the question I have for us is this, and this is so important. What is Jesus doing on his throne? What is Jesus doing in his exalted, kingly, powerful position? Is he just there soaking up the praise of angels? No, Jesus has been exalted into heaven at the right hand of the Father, not only because he is worthy, but also because he is working on your behalf at this very moment. See, 1 John 2, 1 says, my little children talking to Christians, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. When we sin, Jesus is advocating on our behalf. He's an advocate who speaks on behalf of a weaker vessel, who speaks on behalf of us. First John 2 goes on and it tells us that Jesus is our advocate because he is our propitiation or payment for our sins. Meaning Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father as a perpetual reminder of the cross of Christ. A perpetual reminder of the gospel. That Jesus has paid for our sin in full and that we can be received by the Father because upon us has been placed the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You see, even in Jesus' exalted position of power, he is still advocating for us. When we sin. Furthermore, he also intercedes for us. Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercede, who indeed is interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25 says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus right now is at the right hand of the Father, pleading our cause 
seeking our interests before the God of the universe. He presents his merits on our behalf. And he does whatever is necessary to obtain the grace and strength we need on this earth. This is how Jesus is utilizing his kingly place in heaven. Diana Frances Spencer was born July 1st, 1961 in Wales. In 1975, when her father inherited the title Earl Spencer, she became known as Lady Diana Spencer. But then in 1981, she married the eldest son of Queen Elizabeth, and she became known as Princess Diana. She quickly became a beloved princess throughout the whole world. And it wasn't just because of her position, but it's because of what she did in her royal position. She used her position to advocate for those who could not advocate for themselves. She was on the board of over 100 different charities at one time. One thing she did is that when AIDS first kind of broke out and became uh, mainstream, it was, it was a very uh, unsettling topic. And she started to work with AIDS victims. And so in 1989, she opened the first AIDS clinic in London. And in 1990, the next year, she opened one in Washington, D.C. And she would go and she would visit the AIDS patients. And on repeated occasions, she would do something that was not kosher at that time. She would touch their arm. She would treat them as human. They were not sure yet how, how AIDS was spread. And so she still, uh, not knowing for sure for her own sake, but she would touch these people. She would humanize these people. She would love these people. And it was said that even when the paparazzi was gone, she would sneak back at night to go and visit these people and care for these people. You see, Princess Diana was so beloved, not only because she was exalted to a level of prominence, but because she used that prominence to advocate for those who so desperately needed an advocate and an intercessor to give them the things that they needed. Jesus has ascended to heaven so he could be exalted above all powers and use his position and his status and his authority as king to intercede for you, to advocate for you, to be the mediator between you and God. This is why he is our beloved prophet, priest, and king for all eternity. And so this is the first reason why it is so good that Jesus went away so that he could ascend into heaven to a place of prominence and be our advocate. The second reason is that the ascension was necessary for the endowing of the saints. Endowing is a verb that means to give or to bequeath something to another person. It could, it could involve property or money. That's how we often use that terminology. But it can also mean a quality or an ability in John 16, Jesus says, if I do not go away, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Luke 24, again, just before Jesus' ascension, he says, behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Could you imagine what it was like for the apostles to hear this, that Jesus is sending a helper, that he's promising to send a helper? They must have wondered, what is this helper going to look like? Is this going to be another religious leader, another great teacher, a political revolutionary person? Who's this going to be? Well, Acts 1 tells us. So if you would look, Acts 1 verse 4 says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. 
For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the time or the season that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The gift that Jesus endows Christians with that is only possible through his departure and ascension into heaven is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the greatest gift anyone can receive. And the Holy Spirit is a gift that every single Christian does receive. Now the Holy Spirit has many functions in the lives of God's people. The Holy Spirit regenerates us, searches us, convicts us, teaches us, intercedes for us, enlightens us, transforms us, assures us, and comforts us. But that is not the emphasis of the gift of the Holy Spirit here in in Acts chapter 1. The emphasis here is that the Holy Spirit will give you power, and more specifically, power for mission, to continue the earthly ministry of Jesus while he is ascended into heaven by sharing the good news of the kingdom of God and the gospel of Christ. You see, I know many of us love the message of Jesus, and many of us believe wholeheartedly that we should share this good news of the message of Jesus with others, but we are paralyzed with fear, paralyzed with feelings of inadequacy. But God, through his spirit, gives us the might to not only love the message, but also to fulfill the mission and make fruitful our gospel proclamation. You know, this word power in verse 8, verse 8 again, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of this word, the world. This word power is the word dynamis, which we get the word dynamite from. And it's used seven other times in the gospel of Acts. And every time it's used in the gospel of Acts, it's referring to power given by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christian, do you believe that this power resides inside of you, that the Spirit is within you to proclaim the glorious riches of God's grace. Let me illustrate this way. I think I've done this before, but I have this little pack here. It's connected to my microphone, right? And in this little thingamajiggy, I'm not sure what this is called, but in this little thingamajiggy, um, in and of itself, it has no power at all. Uh, It can't accomplish anything on its own. But what we do, and you can't see it, but what we do is there's, we put a battery inside of it. And a battery inside of it empowers it to amplify my voice. And so how do I take advantage of this power within this contraption? How do I utilize that power? Just by talking. <laughs> That's all I have to do is open my mouth and speak the words of the gospel. That's how I leverage this power. 
You see, the Holy Spirit is the battery for our witness. He is invisible, but no less real and powerful, allowing our voices to be heard and make dead people come alive. And the way that we leverage this power of the Holy Spirit, it is so simple. The way that you leverage it is simply by talking, by sharing the good news of Jesus with others. Christian, Jesus ascended into heaven so to endow us with the power of the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of Green Bay. And so Jesus' ascension was necessary for our benefit, for the exaltation of Christ who sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, ruling and reigning on our behalf but also for the equipping of the saints by sending the Holy Spirit into Christians like you and me to boldly go forth and proclaim the good news of the gospel that the kingdom of Christ might spread across this earth. Finally, the good reason, the good news of why Jesus went away, why Jesus ascended into heaven, why it was necessary is for our enjoyment of heaven. You know, it's interesting. The Bible uses this term heaven in different ways. It actually talks about three different types of heavens. Uh, two of them kind of refer to what we call the sky. One, one heavens is kind of our atmosphere. It's the clouds. Genesis 1 talks about that's where the birds are flying around as are in the heavens above. The second heavens has to do with kind of the outermost ends of the universe. So the sun, moon, stars is in that second heavens. But then there is the third heaven. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. This third heaven is to where Jesus ascended and is right now sitting at the right hand of the Father. This third heaven is the one that Jesus has gone to prepare for us. For all eternity. This is implicit in a lot of today's passage, but it's more explicit in John 14. And so I want to read that to you. It's going to be on the screen. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus is not minimizing the troubles of the apostles. He's not minimizing your heartache. Jesus is not simply saying, turn that frown upside down. Jesus is not saying, do not grieve, do not mourn. He's not saying any of those things. But rather, what Jesus is telling his apostles and telling you and me is that there is a hope that is more hopeful than your troubles are troubling. There's a hope that is more hopeful than your troubles are troubling. Verse 2, he goes on, he says, in my father's house are many rooms. Now, we know Jesus is talking about heaven because we've Talk about our Father who art in heaven, right, in the Lord's Prayer. And so he's talking about heaven. He says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go, that is through this ascension, to prepare a place for you. Verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you. To where? This is so interesting. He doesn't say I will take you to heaven. He doesn't say I will take you to paradise. He does not say, I will take you to the Father's house. He says, I will take you to myself. 
that where I am, you may be also. See, many people's vision of heaven, um, well, one really distorted version is just that we're all on clouds, right? Like with naked angels with bows and arrows or something like that, like Cupid. Many of us envision heaven to be kind of like Hawaii, right? It's sunny, it's beautiful, temperate weather, but we have perfect bodies and so we can play golf and we don't hurt, play tennis and we don't hurt. We can go swimming, we can stay at the beach and that's kind of people's view of heaven and why heaven is so wonderful. But heaven is far better than that because according to verse three, what makes heaven so heavenly is not the weather, it's not the newness of our bodies, it's not the great food and wine. What makes heaven so heavenly is the presence of the one who has gone before us to bring us to himself. You see, every year, my, my family, my wife, kids, and I, we go to a family reunion at my sister's house in Kansas City. And she has a pretty nice house with some pretty cool stuff. But she prepares for us to come. She, she buys all the food. She, she gets the beds together. Uh, she creates some games for us to do. Usually, they buy a new TV or something fun like that. But what makes the trouble and the, and the pain of driving 20 hours round trip so worth it is not that we get to go to her house or that we get to go to Kansas City, it's but that we get to be with my family, that we get to be with people, my sisters, my brothers, my mom, my dad, my cousins, my nephews. You see, what makes it so wonderful is not the place, although the place is wonderful, it is the people. If this is true of a family reunion in a Kansas City with sinful human beings, how much truer is it of heaven with our perfect Savior. You see, heaven is not so much about residing in a place, but it's about residing with a person. Heaven is where God dwells, in the Father's house where Jesus resides and is sitting on his throne at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. What makes heaven so heavenly is that day after day, we get to enjoy sweet communion with the Lord as we were created to do in a sin-free, trouble-free, heartache-free glory. See, Jesus did not ascend into heaven. If Jesus did not ascend into heaven, then we could enjoy his presence on earth temporarily. But because he ascended into heaven, we get to enjoy his presence forever and ever. And so how can Jesus say, let not your heart be troubled? How can Jesus say, it is to your advantage that I go away? It was because if Jesus had not ascended into heaven, we could not look at today's troubles and say we are merely on a journey going to our home to be with our Savior for all eternity to enjoy his presence. Let me end with this. I don't know if you've heard of the great Zlatan. Who have you heard of Zlatan? Just curious. Raise your hand. All right. One person. Sweet. All right. The great Zlatan, evidently he's not that great, but Zlatan is a uh, soccer player. He was born in 1981. He's currently 38 years old, which is old for a soccer player, but he's a world-renowned soccer player uh, who has 32 trophies, 520 career goals. He leads the Swedish national team with most goals all times, and he's currently the third most decorated active soccer player in the world. He's big stuff, okay? Anyways, last year, Zlatan left the prestigious European leagues, and he came to the U.S. to play for the L.A. Galaxy. And he is a very, very arrogant guy. For example, 
when right after he signed his contract with LA, he took out a full page ad in the LA Times and it simply read this, Dear Los Angeles, you're welcome, okay? And uh, to be honest with you, he is a great player. Uh, in fact, they just played their rival, I think it was last night or the day before, and he scored all three goals to beat their rival. He's a, he's a great player. Anyways, back in 2016, when he was getting older and people were thinking that he was approaching retirement, he sent out this tweet, okay? And the tweet simply said this. He said, you think I'm done, but I'm just warming up. You think I'm done, but I'm just warming up. And he was right, because he's having a fantastic year this year. You know, one of my favorite words in the whole Bible is found in Acts 1, verse 1. I'm curious if you can figure out which word it is. In Acts 1, 1, it, he says, in the first book, the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Can you guess what my favorite word is in there? You probably think Jesus, right? That's probably a good answer. But it's the word began. Luke says that in his writing of the gospel of Luke, which is from the birth of Jesus to the ascension of Jesus, which included Jesus' preaching of the gospel, his healing of the lame, his casting of the demon, his raising people from the dead, his, his death, his burial, his resurrection... Luke says that is only the beginning of what Jesus is beginning to do. In other words, Acts 1.1 says, you thought Jesus was done, but he was just warming up. Make no mistake, friends. While it would be nice if Jesus was physically, bodily, touchably with us today, it is to our advantage that Jesus has ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Because Jesus' ascension was necessary for him to rule and reign over all things for our advocacy as our intercessor. Jesus' ascension was necessary because it is only through his ascension that he could endow his saints with the gift of the Holy Spirit to multiply his kingdom throughout the world through the proclamation of the gospel. And it was only through the ascension of Jesus that he could go and prepare a place for us to enjoy him forever and for always. At the ascension, the world may have thought that Jesus was done with his ministry. But he was just warming up. Christian, Jesus is alive and he is well and he is sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and he is working in us and through us and for us. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that we do not worship a distant Savior, nor do we worship a dead Savior, but we worship a living and active King who is working all things for our good, who is spread, spreading his kingdom of redemption throughout the whole world through his church. Pray that we would live as people who believe in the depths of our heart that you have put the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Pray that we would live as a people who rejoice that you are actively ministering on our behalf and to us and through us. Lord, help us to believe 
Help us to apply these great truths. Help us to rejoice in them in the depth of our soul. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we come to the Lord's table, we do not believe this is the physical body and physical blood of Jesus. We don't believe that we are re-sacrificing Jesus. And the reason for this is because of exactly what we profess today. That Jesus is alive and bodily is sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And so we come to this day, we come to this table, and we take of these elements, believing that Christ is spiritually present in these elements for our nourishment. And when we receive them by faith, they are to encourage us in the mission that God has called us to, encourage us in the good news of God's love for us. And so if you're here today trusting in Christ for your salvation, if you've been admitted to this table by the leadership of a gospel-preaching church, we encourage you to come today, no matter how weak you are, come and be nourished by the body and blood of Jesus. But if you're here today and you do not trust in Christ for your salvation, if you do not know this living King, living Savior, we pray that you would trust in him today. But if you do not, we ask that you not take of these elements yet, but wait till that day that you can take it genuinely in faith in Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, drink of this, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Friends, we'll have ushers set up throughout the sanctuary. When you're ready, please go take the elements bring them back to your seat and we'll partake together as one body, the body of Jesus Christ.